welcome to the Internet History Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today we have David Pakman, who is a well-respected venture capitalist at Venrock, but has also been a lifelong musician and music fan. And earlier in his career, he played a significant role in bringing music to the web for the first time. David tells us about co-founding Apple's music group in the mid-1990s, his role in facilitating the first digital sales of music online at dot-com-era companies N2K and MyPlay, and also competing directly against iTunes later on when he was at eMusic. As a bonus, David gives us some background on the more recent founding story of Dollar Shave Club, as well as several interesting thoughts about robotics and the technologies that he finds interesting in the present day and future. Please enjoy. David Pakman, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, this will be sort of a weird way to start, but you were at Apple from the early 80s? Late 80s. Late 80s, okay, to, to about 97. So that is exactly, and this is why it's a weird way to start, that is exactly what people would think of as the Dark Ages. <laughs> yeah. Um, can you just, in a, a couple, couple minutes, just describe for me your experience of Apple at that time, what the company is like, what the culture was like, that sort of thing? Yeah, Mac was still uh, this small 1%, 2 3% market share platform that only the Zealots believed in. Um, GUIs weren't, graphic user interfaces weren't uh, wasn't clear to everyone that that was a superior way to interact with the computer. Uh, Windows 95, which was the beginning really of the dominance of Windows, hadn't yet happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was still kind of almost a religious debate versus uh, Mac versus versus DOS in mm-hmm. many cases. That was the operating system that preceded Windows. Um, so it was uh, it was a fun time to be uh, a part of the Apple juggernaut because we were right. Uh, we knew that computers should be simpler and should be easy to use and also should be elegant and should help you create your best. But that's not the way personal computers were pitched. They were computing machines for a long time. So it, was a, it, was a, it felt good to be a part of it, mm-hmm. but also uh, we were a huge underdog. Well, and this will lead us into what uh, you were doing at Apple, uh, especially towards the end. But also at this time, as you say, it's, it's pitched towards creative people and multimedia things. That's what Apple was actively pushing forward. Um, as a way to differentiate or as a, as a way to uh, go in a different direction, anticipate where computing was going? Yeah, Apple, I think, believed uh, early on that computers were great for two main things. One was creating, uh, authoring, and making media or cre- letting the creativity within you come out. It was a tool for creativity. Um, bicycle for your mind was something that... Uh, Steve Jobs originally described the Macintosh as. Um, and, uh, and it was also a um, communications device, something that we were, going, we were using to interact with each other. And so, so I think that's why when the Internet eventually made its commercial debut in the mid-'90s, Apple was quick to jump on it because we viewed these devices as meant for communication. So if you're going to network them all together, we can communicate even more effectively. And this is opposed to... These are number-crunching machines meant to run spreadsheets and help accountants. So before um, the Apple Music Group, what it, were you primarily working on at Apple? Yeah, so I, I went in as a product manager okay. um, working on system software. So this was uh, uh, Mac OS, as it's called now, uh, 7, 
um, eight and nine, uh, and those were you know just versions of the OS that I was a product manager for different pieces of software basically that mm -hmm. were part of the OS. Name a couple uh, software. Yeah, so one product I was a product manager for was called At Ease, which was a product to simplify the Mac even further mm -hmm. for kids. Uh, sort of kid finder. If you know what the finder is, that's the interface you stare at the Mac and see. And this was like a, a version for kids, so they couldn't like delete your hard drive by putting it in the trash. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, uh, and I was a product manager for a bunch of different pieces of System Seven as well. So, how does the um, Apple Music project come about? So, I had a personal passion, always have, about music. I'm a musician, a drummer, and love music. And uh, and around the time of the internet, again, during '94, '95. It was obvious to me and to most others who were interested in digital media that uh, music was going to be one of the very first data types to digitize and therefore be able to be transmitted over the internet. That quickly music distribution would change from hard good CDs uh, to digital files, digital downloads. And Apple uh, had a lot of credibility in music because every artist used a Mac uh, and every recording studio had a Mac. So we, my pitch to Apple at the time was we should use our clout in the music business with artists and producers and people in the studios to be at this nexus, this transformation from hard good uh, to digital, from atoms to bits, as we used to say. Um, and Apple was receptive to that idea and let me start the music group, which was focused on really advancing that cause. So I'm going to do a bit of context for listeners. Um, this is around the time of Rob Lord has been on the show, um, people starting to experiment. MP3s aren't even created till 96 or whatever. I think you've even done business a couple of times with Rob Lord, right? Uh, many times. Many times, yeah. right. Um, so is it, are you already starting to think of those things in terms of the consumer end of it as well, or are you only concentrating on the uh, artist and the creation end? So this was before MP3s. Right. But the belief was, the original vision was, if music goes digital and files can be downloaded, why do you need record companies and record stores? Couldn't artists themselves distribute their works directly to consumers? Which has actually been a grand thematic vision of most of the internet that you would eliminate middlemen, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Now, this is not the way it's fully played out, as we now know. Uh, meet the new boss, it's the same as the old boss. There are new middlemen, but we have not successfully eliminated middlemen. We've, we've really just replaced them. Mm -hmm. um, so the belief was that Apple could help facilitate that change, and there wasn't a standard format. You were asked about MP3. Um, Apple had a format, though, called QuickTime, mm -hmm. and so we believe we could, we could help with that. Now, just a few years later, MP3 really took hold as a compression format, uh, codec, as, as it's known, um, and uh, was something that consumers could, could easily take part in. They could take a CD, rip it, as it was called, pull, pull digital files off the CD, turn them into MP3s, which just compressed them, made them smaller, and start emailing them to each other. Uh, and this was when, I remember it very distinctly, in 1997, um, you could do a search on the internet, 97, 98, and there was a time where MP3 was the most used search term mm -hmm. uh, higher than sex mm -hmm. for, for a brief period of time. And that was an indication that there is huge pent-up demand for downloading music. So what are the, what are the projects or, or um, things that the Apple Music Group does in your time? Yeah, so in this time frame, um, what we decided to focus on was let's showcase what QuickTime and the Mac 
and the different tools that we make can do for creatives. And one of them was obviously author. So we had a multimedia toolkit for authoring either CD-ROMs or what eventually became web websites. And we also had uh, some digital video tools to use QuickTime and make digital video, which was new to computers. Um, and finally, because of the internet, we said you could transmit this stuff live. You could webcast. And, and Apple was really a pioneer of webcasting. The music group, Apple Music Group, was... Um, was really one of the first people to do webcasts, and we went out to evangelize that. We partnered with Real Audio, which was mm -hmm. uh, Real Networks, which made a product called Real Rob, Audio. Rob Glazer has been on the okay, show. Okay, so Rob was a partner of ours, and we wired up music clubs. We went to the Grammys and said, you guys should have sort of a live webcast behind the scenes. We went to different concerts, uh, and we started to showcase webcasts and webcasted uh, scores of events, um, and people were tuning in. Um, I'm going to speculate because I actually couldn't find any details on this in my research, but I know you leave around 97. Is, it, is the whole uh, Apple music shift one of those things that when Steve comes back, he's like, we're going to clear the slate and only concentrate on a few things, only to rediscover it a few later, years later? Is that sort of the you're, timeline? You're so perceptive. That's exactly what happened. Uh, Steve came back in and... Uh, with great irony, I think, because, of course, Apple's uh, music has been, was the real mechanism for Apple's resurgence mm -hmm. later, but said, we just can't afford to spend any time in this, and uh, there, there was no, was trimming the company down, lots of layoffs. Um, and at that time, digital music really was starting to take off. So I left as Steve came back. He said, we're not going to spend time on music. And I joined a music start, digital music startup mm -hmm. called N2K. Right. So um, just tell us a little bit about N2K. Uh, maybe people might know the name Music Boulevard more, but yeah. Yeah. So this was really one of the very first. There were three or four original digital music companies. You know, Liquid Audio was one who created a format and a DRM system to protect music as it was transmitted over the net. N2K was a selection of properties. One was called Music Boulevard, which was just a CD store online, a place to buy CDs online. Um, it was also a record label meant to try to sign artists and then sell them digitally through the internet only, um, and, uh, and a bunch of other sort of core technologies and properties. Um, there were a bunch of content sites, Jazz Central Station, Classical Insights. So content, community, commerce was the sort of buzz phrase then. And um, we believed that let's first start selling CDs to people to get to know our customers. We'd be the first record company that actually had customers that mm -hmm. they knew. Uh, and so we let's, they said, let's open a retailer to do that first. We opened up Music Boulevard, sold lots of CDs to lots of end users, and got to know who they were and got to know their musical preferences. And then we tried to shift them in their buying behavior from CDs to digital downloads. We partnered with Liquid Audio, who made a format. We went to all the record labels. We said, guys, this is, you know, 90, 96, 97 time frame, 97 time frame, 97, 98. Um, you should sell your music digitally and the rec because this is going to happen. CDs are going to go away. And all the major record labels said, no way. It'll never happen. We're happy with CDs. Why would we do anything digital? It was the independent record labels who said, oh, absolutely, this is going to happen, and maybe we can even get better margins because we don't have to spend money on plastic anymore. And, boy, we might, might even be able to overcome this bottleneck in distribution. We have trouble getting the physical stores to carry our independently produced records or CDs. Maybe we can uh, have infinite shelf space online. So mm -hmm. we, we were one of the very first companies to try, I think we were the first, to have a commercially viable, protected digital download store where you could buy songs for 99 cents. And that's in what, 97, 98? Yeah, yeah, 98. 
So again, it is like the, the, the famous story of Netflix being, we didn't name it DVDbyMail.com. This is just to, to, to accumulate a customer base, but we know where the future is going and we're, we want to go in that direction. Exactly right. And I think what, um, what we didn't anticipate was, that, and this is great news for the internet, was um, consumers preferred low friction and there was no cost and no restrictions to downloading an MP3. Mm-hmm. But downloading a 99-cent song in those days had lots of friction and lots of protection around the file, and it didn't, only worked on certain computers. And Well, the, and also what people forget is like hard drives weren't even big enough at this point. Right. Like to, to put a whole album on your computer if it has you know, a 100-megabyte hard drive, like, that's almost impossible to do. Exactly right. And in fact, the... Um, the, the uh, first MP3 player, portable MP3 device, was, was invented around this mm-hmm. time frame, 98-ish, mm-hmm. was when the Diamond Rio right. came out. And, uh, and that was a watershed moment for many of us in digital music. It was like, wait a second, this is the Walkman replacement, mm-hmm. except uh, instead of having tape, uh, you know, you have RAM. But again, that one can only hold about, because I had one, only yeah. about one album. At yeah, time, right, you know? yeah. So, really right. limited storage. Exactly. But it was, you know, a, it was a sign of things to come. Mm-hmm. And, and this was really around the explosion of MP3s being downloaded mm-hmm. in 99. We start seeing Napster emerge. So, right. Um, I, I think you also, um, there's another company involved around this time, MyPlay, you go to or whatever. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the Napster moment. Um, actually, I don't even know what question to ask you about that. But is it, is it sort of, was it necessary for someone like Napster to come in and really bloody everybody's nose, including their own, um, for everyone to learn the lesson that you guys were trying to, to, to teach people. I think the... First, there's one thing that happened right before it that's critical. Okay. The music industry sues to try to stop the Diamond Rio MP3 player. Um, music industry wants to control the next format for music. Um, MP3s were open source effect. Well, they weren't open source, but they were a fully licensable uh, format. The music industry did not control it. They sued to try to kill that device. They lost. And that was a seminal moment that said, actually, there's going to be an MP3 player industry, and MP3 is a fully um, permissible format for mm-hmm. you know, moving uh, digital music around. Um, what Napster showed was, by, by the way, so the music industry says at this time, we are not going to sell any of our songs digitally in MP3. In fact, we're also going to slow roll the licensed selling of any actual downloads, whether it's in our format or not. There were like a couple songs you could buy legally, and they were in formats that wouldn't work on any player. Universal launched a format called Blue Matter. Each record label thought they'd have their own format. It's crazy. None of that would work, but they had to go through that, I think, to learn. Mm -hmm. But what the Napster moment showed is demand. There were, I don't know, I think 20 or 30 million people using Napster, trading mp3 files you could say stealing or you could say trading it's the same thing they were it was in my view a demonstration of demand to have a slow internet at this time where where no one had a gigabit you know or 100 megabit connections Mm -hmm. in their house this is still modems and maybe dsl lines um, you know very limited connectivity and certainly no wireless bandwidth for your phones to have 30 million people waiting for mp3 files to download was a representative of demand. People wanted songs instantly or near instantly without friction. And that was the message that I think the music industry should have taken away. We need to satisfy this demand. Instead, they said, we got to sue this and stop. One of my favorite factoids is that Napster at its peak has more users than 
AOL ever did at its peak. Wow. Um, but, and I wish I could remember his name, a, a writer um, has said before that the lesson is, is that the music industry won the wrong lawsuit. They successfully shut down Napster, but they didn't win the lawsuit shutting down the MP3 players, as you're, as you're pointing out. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, again, before we, we get to more recent stuff, um, you're heavily involved with, with e-music through the next decade, um, which is around the time, as we say, when Apple uh, res- is resurgent because of embracing music and because of iTunes and things like that. Um, just whatever you want to tell me about e-music and specifically competing against Apple, competing against what becomes a juggernaut in iTunes. So in the next five years or so, the music industry spins their wheels, going really slowly, trying to play with proprietary formats, trying to license as few third parties as possible, really not selling their songs digitally, uh, except maybe under very limited terms, and continuing to see this pent-up demand to do things illegally, because there was no other choice. So you, you had to use Napster or Kazaa or LimeWire or any of these other products that were theft or fair use, depending on your view, but you couldn't pay anyone to buy the songs anyway. Uh, this is like a five or six year period, kind of crazy um, to, to let demand go that long unfulfilled. Apple comes along and says, guys, we're, we're showing you our customers really like playing around with digital files. We, need to, we have this software called iTunes. There's Music Match. There's all this software in the world to manage people's digital music collections of MP3 files. We gotta sell them songs. And Steve Jobs convinces them on the Mac, which is a small platform at the time, let's just sell them for 99 cents each. And this is, the, this is the seminal moment where the music industry decides to trust a third party. They trust Apple. And, and now Apple succeeds in really creating the first commercial music store for downloads. What we noticed at the time is MP3 is a thousand times bigger than that. Um, but no matter what uh, format you end up buying your songs in, why should you store them on a single hard drive? Mm-hmm. Uh, you should store them in the cloud. We, we invented MyPlay, which was effectively Dropbox for music in 99, mm-hmm. sold that two years later. And, and still, through all this time, the music industry slow rolling their uh, embrace of digital downloads. The, the people who weren't were um, the independents. So now you've got Apple selling protected files, DRM'd files that will only work on a few different players, and you have the indies willing to sell MP3s. And so the, the e-music observation was, I think consumers would prefer MP3s because of the work on any player. There weren't just iPods, there were lots of different brands of players out there. Um, and so we, e-music was an attempt to satisfy consumers' craving for DRM-free music that could play anywhere, but the only record companies that would play ball were indies. So that, that was eMusic. I, I ran it for a number of years, about five years, and it was you know became the number two digital music store in the world. But it never had any music from the majors. I do want to point out that you, you mentioned my play again, but again, uh, seeing where the future is going, um, that idea of music in the cloud, obviously, that's essentially how everyone listens to music today. Period. So, um, <clears throat> when you're too early, exactly. Uh, so when do you move over to, to, to the VC side? So uh, after five years at eMusic, we actually were preparing to take the company public. It was doing quite well. Uh, and, uh, and so this is uh, 2008, um, and the, we had this big correction in the markets. Um, and it was pretty clear that things wouldn't recover for a number of years. Um, so I had been in digital music really my whole career, except for a few early years at Apple. And really, this is now... You know, 2008, we have the rise of mobile, and we have the rise of social. 
And these looked to me to be extremely interesting, large macro trends that I wasn't getting to participate in meaningfully in the digital music space. So in 2008, I moved over to Venrock and joined there as a partner to focus more broadly on tech, consumer and enterprise, and, and try to find the next interesting waves. Um, but I got to participate in lots of different markets and lots of different segments instead of just digital music. So uh, to, to get into some of the things that I want to ask you about, I want to just ask about a couple of uh, investments that Venrock's been in. Um, with, uh, and I know this is jumping around chronologically, but with Nest, um, were you familiar with those guys from your time at Apple, or they were there after I was there, so after, I didn't okay. know Matt and Tony. Right. But, uh, that that team, which this is the team that did iPhone and mm -hmm, iPad mm -hmm. and, uh, and iPod, um, extraordinary team. So no, I didn't know them when I was there, but um, a number of folks at Venrock uh, kept in touch with a lot of different Apple people, mm -hmm. and, and we were lucky to connect up with them. And uh, AppNexus, what's the story of that? AppNexus was an investment that led, I think, in 2008, actually, just before I joined Venrock uh -huh. by my, my partner, uh, Mike Terrell. And uh, this was a founder of, right, one of the founders and CTOs of, of Right Media, which was really the first attempt at an online ad exchange who wanted to do it better. Mm -hmm. um, and after that sale to Yahoo left, and or commensurate with the sale to Yahoo, he left and started AppNexus. Um, and that was really, a, still is a, a great company, that is, you know, the, the dominant business model of the internet is still advertising, and this is the sort of real-time exchange for providing ads on the internet. And if people want to jump ship from uh, Facebook now because of the algorithm change, there's other people willing to step in and take your money right now. Um, all right, let's, let's talk about the story of the Dollar Shave Club investment. Uh, you hear about Dollar Shave Club like everyone else did from that, that video, right? Yeah, I was sitting at my desk in New York and, you know, scrolling through the feeds and uh, I saw the Dollar Shave Club um, video and conversation happening in real time on that day and uh, obviously clicked through um, and I laughed out loud. I don't usually laugh out loud a lot by myself, but I did. I thought it was hysterical and, uh, you know, I thought, thought it was brilliant marketing. But what the hunch I had was not that this is going to be a great marketer. But you know, at eMusic, I ran a subscription business, um, and uh, I spent time looking at a number of subscription businesses uh, for investment, and had a pretty good sense of the metrics that drive successful subscription. It's not rocket science at all. Uh, big market, and you need low churn. Mm. But what was interesting was that. Do you also need? You also need a product that lends itself to the regular up, like I need more, that sort of right. thing? Yeah, Yeah. so that manifests in low churn, right? If it's a, gotcha. if it's a replenishment product, which exactly. is I think what you're alluding to, then uh, the consumer doesn't churn out because they need more of it all the time. Um, if it's a product you use highly episodically and on rare occasions, that's not good to be sold as a subscription. Mm -hmm. um, but So I knew that this was a category. People shave mostly every day. Um, almost everyone shaves. And uh, so it was likely to have very high loyalty and a really big market. So no rocket science there, but still things I knew to look for. Um, I did some Googling, found out who the uh, company's seed investors were. I knew one of them, uh, emailed him, Peter Pham at Science, and said, I really want to meet this company. Would you make an introduction? He said, perfect timing. Love to do that. I flew to L.A. the next week and sat down with Michael and his team. What did you think of the team? Was that a, a big clue that this is going to be a success? Yeah. Yeah, what you're, what you're looking for are entrepreneurs with sort of extraordinary ambition 
which Michael certainly had, mm -hmm. and kind of a non-consensus approach about how to build their business. I mean, if they were doing something obvious, other people would be doing it. Um, his view was that Gillette was super vulnerable, that um, there was a large group of consumers who would want to buy value, which usually means lower, lower cost, but similar or slightly lesser quality, that um, you know, Gillette had priced themselves Mm -hmm. pre and market themselves as premium brand, and that there was a big segment that um, could be served by something that costs a lot less. Um, and most importantly, people hate going to like CVS or Dwayne Reed or something to buy your razors because they're locked in this razor fortress, and uh, it's super inconvenient to go to the store anyway to buy stuff. And so, what this is a product that absolutely should be delivered to your door exactly when you need it. It should be sold as a subscription and sold direct to consumers. And there are very few large direct-to-consumer brands at this time. Mm -hmm. um, but this was all Michael's realization. I agreed 100% with that. In fact, our main investment thesis in the space was not that people are going to buy a lot of razors, but was that um, in the age of social, where this is, you know, this is the rise of Facebook here and Twitter, every customer of yours is, is, on a, is, on, is connected to a few social networks. And if they have a bad experience with you, they're going to talk about it. They have a good experience with you, they're going to talk about it. So their ability to influence people is much, much higher than in the non-social world. And you, as the brand, actually have to have a relationship with them to talk to them about that. You need to listen to what they say. You need to respond to them. But if you're a company that sells through distribution, which sells to a retailer, they aren't your customers. Mm -hmm. So I still argue today, like, if you're a Gillette customer, you're actually not a Gillette customer. You're like a Target customer or a Dwayne Reed customer. Right. That's, where you're That's who knows who you are. Gillette doesn't know who you are. So how can they have a conversation with you? So the thesis was brands must shift to become direct-to-consumer brands so they can have authentic conversations with consumers. So I've seen you speak many times about this idea of, of being a conversation brand. Um, it, it, is, that, is that limited to only certain product categories or can a vast array of consumer products create this sort of relationship directly with people? I think many can. Not, not every single brand. Right. I don't know that like um, you know, a company that makes bricks needs right, to have yeah. a consumer relationship. Um, but let's look at automobiles. I mean, most would say no way. Uh, you know, the car companies have no idea who you are. They're, their customer are dealers. Mm -hmm. And dealers are they're like value destructive to the buying process. Like they're intentionally misleading you. <laughs> they're trying to trick you. Like how is that good for the brand itself? But somehow they get away with it. Um, so around comes Tesla mm -hmm. and says, no way. You buy it on a website. There's no negotiation. We won't, we, we'll like uh, build a couple of places for you to go see them and like for you to pick it up. But we have a dealership like we don't have any control over. And guess what? Now they announce their you know, third or fourth product and 400,000 people stand in line around the United States. Has anyone ever stood in line to buy a car before? And Tesla knows every one of them. In fact, they gave them $1,000 each sends emails to them, uh, has them participate in their forums, takes pictures like Gets this. Gets automatic is a, updates from them. Totally. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, so sure. this, is the, this is absolutely the holistic, and, and by the CEO is a master of social media. It's, mm -hmm. They haven't placed an ad in the history of the company. They haven't spent a dollar of marketing. They spent a lot on PR. They don't spend a dollar on you know, advertising. Um, this is extraordinary, and it's all based on this direct-to-consumer thesis. So if that's where you think... Uh, the future is for success for, for brands going directly to consumer, creating this personal relationship. Um, obviously, this is a question that could be asked of anyone in retail, but what about Amazon, you know, the king of having uh, this relationship with consumers? Um, is, is it 
is there a, a future where there can be a forest of people having direct relationships and also having their primary relationship with Amazon? This is exactly why you have to have a direct relationship with your mm -hmm. customer. Because your choice are really, there are only really two choices. The, the, the physical retailers in the world and the non-value-add online retailers of the world, Target, Best Buy, they're going away. Amazon's killing them all. So your choice is you sell direct through Amazon. I have to say, not direct. You sell through Amazon. Right. And they get to know who all your customers are and on a whim's notice can redirect all of your traffic to another competitor of yours who's selling it cheaper or to themselves if they choose to go into your product category, which they're doing. Right. Or you can sell direct to consumers. You can also do both. Nest does both. Nest built a brand direct and they sell through Lowe's, Home Depot, and Amazon. But they have a lot of focus on getting to know the customer. You have to register with them because they provide software updates and they do all the math on your, you know, thermostats to figure out when to raise and lower it. So mm -hmm. they still have a capture mechanism for you to get to know. But you have no choice. You, you have to go this way unless you want to be a nameless, faceless brand that's just trying to beat the Amazon algorithm. And by the way, there are a few who are doing a great job. I've met some of those companies mm -hmm. who are, they don't really care about their brand. They just know how to win the algorithm war on Amazon and get mm -hmm. all the sales. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's essentially that basic concept of platform like you're only ever really safe if you own your own platform anytime you're dependent on someone else. It's really true. And, and I don't say this with excitement. I mean, it's, this is not a great outcome for anyone in retail, um, but only those who add some tremendous amount of value or experience or differentiation, and, and very few do. But Amazon is going into almost every vertical of products. Like they're, they're just picking off product categories one by one. And so as a supplier to Amazon, even these 100-year-old these consumer packaged goods brands, the Unilever's set of brands and, and P&G's set of brands, if Amazon decides to stop sending traffic to Tide when someone types in Tide or detergent and they send it to Amazon Basics detergent, which is just as good soap, they could shovel away 50, 60, 70% of sales overnight. And they're doing that. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to seem like I'm trying to poke holes in this thesis here, but what about the idea that we live in this sort of attention, this economy where attention is so spread out and divided? So if I'm going to be successful creating a relationship directly with my consumers, how do I break through all of the noise? Everything is chopped up into tiny little niches. Is it easier in this model to identify the niches that work for you, or is that sort of a big problem, is breaking through the noise? So I think the bigger question you're asking is, how many of these relationships are we as customers going to have directly? So I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that we tend to focus on the products and services that you use with very high frequency. Shaving. Mm -hmm. Look at Netflix. Mm -hmm. Like, every night, mm -hmm. come and do it. Facebook every day. Mm -hmm. These are products and services that have extremely high regularity with you. It's much easier for those brands to have this long-term conversation with you because you use them every day than the ones that are really intermittent. You know, a carpet company is going to have a really hard time <laughs> maintaining long-term direct relationships with customers. So, I don't it, it's not a prescription for every brand to solve the problem. It's an investment thesis about where we should focus. <laughs> and by the way, we think most product categories don't fit this category. Um, don't fit this thesis. Mm -hmm. um, luggage. There are tons of really cool luggage startups. Mattresses. Uh, this is totally off the top of my head, but like, so that's an example of something that I wouldn't expect to buy very often. 
but that's something that p- clearly like the leases of the world are trying to do direct. Yes, and this is a, a challenge for, me, for my thesis in so much as, so I passed on Casper, mm-hmm. um, even though I think Philip Krim and his team are extraordinary. I love the brand. I think we own three of the mattresses. I think the product's fantastic. And they have beat every projection they've ever put in front of their investors. It's an extraordinary company. The, the, the concern that we had, which just may be wrong, was, boy, a foam mattress feels like it's not a high amount of product differentiation. Won't there be lots of competitors, including the incumbents, who will, could sell a direct foam mattress? And the answer turns out to be yes to that. Mm-hmm. They do have lots of competitors, including the incumbents, who are now selling foam mattress direct. I think Casper built such an incredible brand, built around service and convenience, at a time when there were no alternatives, that they've got a nice head start. And I think so maybe the answer to your question is that product category was so horrendous, like buying a mattress in a skeevy, you know, 1-800 mattress or sleepies, like lying down on the nasty, you know, fluorescent lit ugh, retail experience that, um, that all flowers are blooming in this category. But, but I agree with you, it doesn't fit the thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, lastly, I'll bring it back to Nest. Um, Clearly, Internet of Things is uh, something that everyone talks about and things like that. But, um, you know, Nest and the concept of the Internet of Things is sort of bringing to reality that Jetsons version of our life. Um, But then you get all of the jokes about why do I care that my refrigerator is talking to me and things like that. So in terms of when you look at investments and things like that, what are you thinking about things like robotics and like smartening all of the universe of, of consumer products and things like that? I think in general, VCs and the tech industry has a habit of running away with a concept. So like Nest comes out and most people then extrapolate data points from that and say there's going to be this, there's going to be a billion, everything's going to have an IP address. And I think that's largely correct. I do think everything's going to have an IP address, but it doesn't mean that 10,000 companies are going to succeed in the space by putting in IP addresses into their devices. So you know, your question about should the refrigerator be connected is still a valuable question because I haven't met a connected refrigerator that's made my life better. Connected garage door openers, that's really changed our lives. Like We don't have to have a smart lock because we can open the garage door remotely when you know if uh, a parent or a visitor comes to the house, right? Um, I can get a message if someone left the garage door open and close it from my phone. Like that's really helped our family. So I think there are some product categories that um, where adding an IP address help a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, robotics for me is I, I view it from a different landscape, and uh, you know typically we need to come we need to look at what technological. Uh, changes and and which pieces of technology are maturing at a time where new product categories can be created. So so right now we're in this period where computer vision, sensor miniaturization and cost, um, and motion producing devices like servos and motors um, are all have all fallen in cost and increased in in value, um, increased in in uh, in um, capability, such that we can combine them and start to make things that that, that are that are robotic, that can do automated tasks for humans and be helpful at, at a good price point. The question is, what are they going to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is still an unanswered question. In the industrial space, robots are very helpful. There are hundreds of companies that are doing quite well in that space, warehouses, auto assembly. Um, but this question about what's a consumer robot going to do is a, is a really interesting question. Most people, when you ask them, will we have a robot in our homes in 20 years, will say, sure, of course, yeah, Jetsons type mm-hmm. thing. 
Um, but how do you get from here to there, I think, is an open question. Because we can't build a robot today that could clean your kitchen uh, and put all the dishes in the dishwasher and then run the dishwasher and then put them away. Uh, we couldn't do that today, not reliably or at any good cost. But we can build robots that vacuum your floors. Right. Robots, super successful, right? Sure. So, so we know we can build vacuums. We don't know if we can, we can't build Rosie yet. Question is, what's the path? And that's a question I've spent a lot of time on. Again, this is off the top of my head, but is one of the, aside from utility and actual use cases, is one of the problems to solve actual mobility. Like when I'm envisioning your robot that will clean the dishes and put them away, is it the physical ability to have both the dexterity to do things that humans can do, but then also, because if I have a robot that I have to pick up and place, like I, I love iRobot and I, I still use them, in a, but you know, it's still, except for the ones that can go back to their thing, but then I have to do separate rooms. So to me, it's like I'm, I'm waiting for that thing where I don't have to lift a finger. Like, is that the big barrier that we're talking about? I, I think around utility, mm -hmm. we have, um, we've built our homes in ways that are optimized for humans. So to make a robot be able to do a lot of things that humans do without fundamentally changing the way houses are designed, mm -hmm. we need to build robots that are move around and do things more like humans, which means like walking and not having wheels and mm -hmm. having grippers that are really good and being able to balance and get through narrow things and go upstairs. And so we, that's hard. Those are hard problems, unsolved, working on them today. What, where we can make a lot of progress, actually, is the flip side of robotics, which is not utility, but personality. And if you look at the robots that have sold in the consumer landscape at high volume, actually, this is where personality has driven a lot of success. So the, the Sphero robots, which mm -hmm. are toys mm -hmm. with personality, mm -hmm. those have sold in the millions of units, um, actually the highest volume robots ever created. Um, Sphero is. Sphero, yeah, yeah. it sold like more than three million. They're the ones robots. that do the BB-8s. They right? do BB-8. They did the little Ollie. They've done yeah. the little Sphero ball. They've sold a lot of robots, and those are personality-driven toys. You may dismiss the category because it's toys, but the company's very successful. So that's telling you something, right? That uh, surprisingly, people react really well to robots with personality, maybe even if they can't clear the dishes. So I think we'll see a lot more traction there. And by the way, that's not just kids. Mm -hmm. um, there's the elder care segment, um, sure. companionships. There's, I think, a lot of things we can do with robots that, that don't clean your dishes. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I, that's interesting to know because my daughter's favorite toy is still that Sphero BB-8. So, <laughs> um, <clears throat> And I was going to say, obviously, uh, famously, the next big thing always starts off as a toy, as we know. So, nice. um, I'd like to end with... Um, my favorite question to VCs, which is always sort of illuminating the different answers. Um, what's the strangest pitch you've ever gotten? And you don't necessarily have to out anybody as like this was a dumb idea, but um, what's the oddest one where you're sitting in a room with people and you're like either that's so crazy it just might work or that'll never work and then it does maybe? So the, the, the craziest experience we had was uh, our conference room in Palo Alto uh, is all glass and we can see out to the parking lot. And we were all meeting as a team in the conference room and the founding team was just about to come in and present and was getting high in the car mm. before they came in to present. So that was probably the strangest moment as a VC. Um, we did not invest in that company and it was not a cannabis company. <laughs> right. Um, I don't know on the spot if I can think of the craziest, wackiest idea. Oh, well, I'll tell you, this one isn't wacky, but just grand in its ambition. Mm. Um, 
I saw, we've seen a couple deals around space, and I've seen two space deals that are sort of completely bananas, but are extraordinary in their ambition and, and could work. Mm-hmm. One is effectively to build um, a, um, a, a, a commercial, non-publicly owned space station, um, which is a really grand project. And the other is in launch technology to get rockets to space, not using a rocket fuel, but instead to throw a rocket to space. And it just might work. So not a space elevator even. Um, just nope, a, a kinetic launcher. Interesting. Throwing a rocket into space. Yeah. Can't say much more, but it's certainly one of the most incredible ideas and teams. And yeah, I have no idea if it'll work, but yeah, yeah. this is the privilege of being in my seat is these people much smarter than you are who with grand ambition come in and tell you a dream. Well, great. Thanks for sharing those, <laughs> those dreams and stories with us. And uh, also a uh, really interesting career. Thanks, uh, David Packman. Thank you for having me. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.